You're listening to the Writers Off The Page podcast. Here's your host, writer, reader, journalist, and lover of soy latte, Sinead Maripodi. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on Writers Off The Page, where I sit down with authors to find out the story behind their stories and their top tips for getting published. Tanya Heaslip grew up in the remote Aussie outback on a cattle farm north of Alice Springs. It was there she developed a passion for books and began writing her own stories. Fast forward a few years and she's now a lawyer, the president of the Northern Territory's Writers' Centre and the author of three memoirs, Alice to Prague and Alice Girl and most recently, Beyond Alice. Tanya Heaslip, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Sinead. What a beautiful introduction. Made it very easy. <laughs> so tell me, take me back to the beginning. I know you started writing when you were just a young girl on a typewriter. What sort of stories were you writing back then? I think growing up in the outback with no distractions whatsoever meant I had a very vivid imagination. And when I say no distractions, I mean hundreds of miles of silence, of just big mountain ranges and beautiful plains and gullies. And the sounds were the sounds of nature, of cattle and um, dingoes and birds, you know, parrots and um, crows and and yeah the sounds the sounds of nature I guess all around me and no distractions we had no television no um, phone um, but what I did have and this was the one thing that really triggered my imagination was the school of the year and once a month mum drove into Alice Springs and came back with a box of books from the school of the year library that my beautiful teacher who I'd never never met or seen but knew by voice um, picked out for me because she knew I loved stories and I loved adventure in particular. So I grew up on this strange diet of books that I think were donated to the School of the Year. They were all set in the 30s and 40s. There were almost no up-to-date books, no Australian books. And they were all Enid Blyton's children having adventures, you know, in English woods. And then there was Heidi climbing up um, her Swiss mountain. And then there was Nancy Drew having adventures in America. And these books combined with this utterly isolated um, lifestyle and blank canvas, I guess, for want of a better word, combined meant that I just had no limits to my imagination. So I started writing stories that bizarrely, in retrospect, combined children in the bush galloping after cattle and mustering and then taking the cattle right down to the edge of Smuggler's Cove on a Devon cliff um, with, with um, you know, mist and storms and shipwrecks. And then there'd be English children on their bicycles cycling through Daffodil Meadows and then heading off uh, to go to the stock camp for the week. And I thought nothing about combining these two worlds, my own world and the world of the storybook. So that's how my imagination grew and that fueled the stories that I then started writing out in hand and then for my 10th birthday I got the best present in the whole world which was a little orange typewriter and so I started tapping out the stories then. How did it go from I guess those stories that you were tapping out on your typewriter or handwriting in your book to a published novel obviously years later but how did the publishing come about? Mm, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, really, I think it stemmed back from those early days, you know, because I just wanted to be a writer when I grew up. It's all I wanted to do. And then, of course, life intervenes <laughs> and 
study and then I ended up in university and in law. And law does dreadful things to creativity and that ended my writing really because you had that left brain, right brain. I can't remember which is which, but the creative side got switched off for the analytical side for decades. But I had this extraordinary experience. I'd, I never stopped loving those childhood books. I wanted to see Europe. And I got to Berlin when the wall was falling, which was the most exciting thing imaginable in 1989. And that then led to me going to teach English in Prague, in the Czech Republic, four years after communism had fallen. And that was the most extraordinary experience because suddenly I was in a different culture and I was completely isolated again. There were lots of similarities to growing up in the bush in a way. And I just wrote when I was there. I wrote madly in my diary all the stories of the people I met and the conversations I had. And I was there for two and a half years in the end and I loved it so much. And I came back to Australia in 1996 and back then we didn't even we barely had computers we certainly didn't have google or facetime once i got back to australia that was it the other side of the world no longer existed and nobody here i knew uh, was aware of prague or i think there were about three people in australia that i knew who'd heard of prague and that was it wow. and there was yeah um, and so I felt very passionate about telling the stories of the Czech people I'd met and the history that they'd had and how very much the West impacted their history during the 20th century with the First World War, Second World War in particular, and then communism and very adversely affected. So I started writing down their stories. This is a long answer. Sorry. No, I love a long answer. Go for it. <laughs> but it just... But it, it then led to 15 years of me still working full-time and writing whenever I could, writing down these stories. First of all, I got all my diaries and my letters and I did a chronological um, script and then I started working. But, of course, I didn't really know how to write. I wanted then. I knew I wanted to publish these stories. I thought that was my childhood desire. I've now got these stories in Prague. Um, but I didn't know how to write anymore. So I'd got everything down, but I was writing like a lawyer. And so I did manage to get to speak to a number of publishers who said, you know, you've got to go back into the feeling, into the heart. And so it took 15 years and 30 rejections. Wow, okay. To, yeah, to finally get it right. So there's no overnight success story there. It was such a struggle. But I was driven by this passion to tell these stories and I just kept dreaming of it being published and then finally after all those rejections and many you know teary nights thinking I'm a failure why am I doing this I should give up um, a miracle happened and I got introduced to the right person to the right person who helped me shape the last draft and said the trouble with this tenure now is that it's all about central Europe but what you're forgetting is for most readers in Australia, Central Australia is just as exotic. So I rewrote it and wove my own story more into it. So in the end, she helped me pitch to Alan and Unwin and I ended up with this amazing two-book deal, which was every writer's dream come true. And so Alistair Prague was the first one, as you mentioned, and that interweaves my stories there with the story of growing up in Central Australia and all the sort of compare and contrast that we used to have to do in English essays. Uh, and then that led, the second book was an Alice Girl, which then had to be published 12 months afterwards about growing up here in Central Australia. So I went from 15 years <laughs> to finalise something to having less than 12 months to write the second one. Uh, still working full time. 
and that was all about growing up here in Central Australia. And then that led to the third one, um, 12 months after that, about the teenage years and heading off to boarding school. So that's sort of the publishing story, a long, ruling um, process. Uh, but to have three memoirs, all about Central Australia in the 60s and 70s, and then with other parts, including like Prague, for example, in the first one, is it's just, it's a dream come true. I love that. And it makes me laugh actually a little bit that the feedback that you got was early on was that you needed to put the heart in there and you needed to feel <laughs> that. Because reading Beyond Alice, that was the first thing that struck me, just how the, the heart that was in it, that we went into your mind as a little girl and yeah. you tugged at the heartstrings so much. It's so oh. strong. So for that to be a critique early on, you wow, you've just gone above and beyond with it. So let's talk beyond, Alice. It's your third memoir. Yes. I'll get you to give us a little summary first about what it is. When I was 12, I had to leave our beautiful isolated cattle station in Central Australia where I just had my sibling and two brothers, my sorry, sister and two brothers, both, uh, all three of them younger than me and my family, very strong unit, horses, dogs, cattle, to go 1,600 kilometres south to an all-girls Victorian-style boarding school. Huge stone walls, concrete, tunics and ties, bells, rules, dormitories, crying at night, all that kind of nightmare stuff. Um, The biggest shock of my life. But the reason that I had to do that was because all bush kids in the 60s and 70s got sent away to boarding school if they lived in the Territory, and it happened a lot in very remote places of Australia, particularly WA and Queensland, New South Wales. Um, And the Territory Government paid Bush families' parents a subsidy to send their children away because they couldn't get an equivalent secondary education in the Bush. So I always knew growing up it was non-negotiable. I was enrolled in this boarding school when I was about four months because back then there were huge waiting lists because there were so many kids being sent to boarding school. So I knew it was going to happen, um, but nothing prepared me for the shock, the homesickness, the grief of five years. Now, it is not natural in primal animal terms to rip you know, a, tw- a 12-year-old child away from their parents and their family and all that they know, but it's done for a higher cause, you know, a bigger cause. And so that's what the five years ultimately taught me. Uh, and I have to say that it was such a traumatic time, despite all the great things that happened in it. I thought I would never, ever think about it again, much less write about it. But when I wrote an Alice Girl, the middle one, which finishes at age 12 and I'm about to go to boarding school, so many people wrote to me and said, please write the next bit. We all went to boarding school too. We want to hear the story. And so I wrote in Beyond Alice, my third memoir, the five years in chronological order uh, of being this naive, tiny, um, completely clueless, socially inept bush child who'd only lived in jeans and boots and never been in a classroom before, never been with other girls before, other kids my own age, except for bush kids, there weren't many of them, to this whole new world that was designed to turn me into a scholar and uh, to, to, to teach me about the outside world. Mind you, when you're 
120 girls locked away in stone and concrete. There's not much of the outside world. But the school had 700 students. The majority were day girls. So we did learn a bit about the outside world through them. Uh, but what happened within those five years was this extraordinary kinship that grew up amongst the girls. Because if you don't have your own family, it's like being in jail. You create your own. And it was like prison. And so the girls there became you know, we all became each other's new family, our second family. And to this day, we are still so close. It was 45, nearly 46 years ago. And it's as vivid today as back then what we we went through. So that led to this book being written, even though I thought I'd never be able to go back there. And a number of the girls came on the journey with me. And so I'd write, we'd share stories, and I'd send them um, chapters and they said it was just like the old days because I'd try and write stories at boarding school mm -hmm. as well for them and then at the end one of the boarders said to me well I wish we'd done this years ago it would have saved me hundreds of dollars in therapy oh. <laughs> well in saying that I growing up read a lot of schools about boarding houses and kids that went away to them and they always sounded like such a fun and brilliant place to be. And you've shattered every fairy tale that I've ever read. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Shad. Well, I thought likewise. That was the one thing I was holding on to. Did you ever read um, uh, St. Clair's, the twins at St. Clair's and Mallory Towers? Mallory Towers, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, and of course, all the Harry Potter books, mind you, they, uh, I'm not, not sure that um, Hogwarts was perhaps the most inviting <laughs> place, but Having said that, I did think that boarding school, even though I was terrified about going, I did hold in my heart from all the storybooks I'd read some hope that it would be this fun, jolly, um, hockey sticks kind of place. And, in fact, it wasn't because it was run, the boarding school itself was run by these old, unhappy, bitter and twisted women in their late 60s, 70s, most of them unmarried or families had gone, who, and, and looking back now, if that was their choice of occupation, that to earn a crust they had to come and look after 120 rebellious teenagers, <laughs> their home life must have been pretty bad. But, of course, we didn't think that at the time. We just thought they were like prison wardens and they you know, behaved like that. So it was... Um, it, it was like a prison and we were, that's what we used to call it and we used to um, do all sorts of things, whatever we could to try and get around the mistresses and cause mischief, but there was little that we could do because the rules were so strict. But writing about it was very cathartic and my friends joke, I think we all agreed with because um, it, it, it's, a, it's something you never, five years in your teenage years of being locked up in a, in a school, um, it, you, you never forget them. <laughs> I want to get into the writing process itself in a moment, but first I want to go into the actual memoir concept. Was, did you always set out when you said you wanted to write a book to begin with, and obviously Alistair Prague was the first book, did you always think about writing a memoir? Was it, Did you ever contemplate doing a fiction novel or anything different? Never, ever a memoir. I didn't even know what memoirs were. I'd never, ever anticipated that. My stories as, as a young girl, you know, those hilarious mixed stories of English and Australian kids having adventures were all fiction, all made up. Um, and when I wanted to write later in life, 
and writing a memoir didn't occur to me. It was that I wanted to write the story of the Czechs. And so that was the driving force. But as I went through, I realised it had to be told through my eyes because I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't a historian. I wasn't a cultural writer. So effectively, I fell into it as a means of telling my story of being in Prague. And then, of course, it was amplified when um, this amazing um, mentor that I had you know, recommended I start bringing my own story into it. So these three memoirs came about by default. I'd never intended to write one. I didn't know how to write one. Uh, and I just ended up on this journey with um, just making it up as I went along, really. Because what I was going to ask, and maybe based on the accidental falling into memoir, maybe it's not something <laughs> that you can answer, but the concept, everyone's always made memoir writing sound quite a scary thing because I've, I've often heard that, you know, oh, you've got to be careful if you want to write a memoir because unless you're a celebrity, a lot of people might not be interested in the story you want to share or mainly be your family that wants to read it or it's obviously your story so you're very passionate about it. And with, I guess, beyond Alice and also an Alice girl being, yes, just your story, not the Czech Republic, how did you know that your story was one that was worth sharing, that it had that broader appeal that would reach out to people and pull them in to read it? Mm, that is such an interesting question, especially as I didn't set out to write <laughs> memoir. I think really I was just encouraged by the publisher who thought there was a market because to publish a book, as you say, it's got to be about the market. Your own story can be as interesting to you as you like, but if no one wants to read it, you're wasting their time and most of all your own. But Rural stories still have an appeal in Australia and we've seen you know, rural crime exploding. Uh, and I think the publishers really encouraged me because they said, nobody's told your story before. So it gave it a not a celebrity status but a different status. I didn't have the competition in the sense that no one else in Central Australia had written a story from a child's perspective of growing up here in the 60s and 70s on a cattle station and then going to boarding school. There were there are other, other books along similar themes, but nobody had written in that style about Central Australia in that time. And so I just started collecting the stories and um, people who spoke to me said these, these are interesting because they're different. So it wasn't even so much that I thought, oh, look, there's, um, you know, people are going to be interested in this. It was other people kept saying to me, it's so different. There's nothing like this. Mm. There's nothing like this out there. And most of all, none of us have ever lived that kind of a life. We've all lived in cities. So we don't know what it's like to grow up in the heat and the dust of the outback. And, again, that's a long answer, isn't it? Because um, it's kind of hard to... No, no, I think you've hit the nail on the head, that whole idea that, you know, if you aren't a celebrity, if you don't have the name that people are going to pick up your book because they're intrigued, it needs to be something different. It needs to be something that the average person has an experience that then they're going to want to read about it. I think that's it. I'm sure that's the only reason the publisher agreed uh, to give me these opportunities. And I feel so grateful because... Having written them, Sinead, I've had so many people around Australia from the outback and from the cities 
writing saying, thank you for telling our story. So these are people who grew up in the outback around that time or went to boarding school and there are no stories about that. Or people from the city saying, oh, this, is, this is fascinating, we never knew, thank you. So both outback and non-outback have responded incredibly well. I feel so lucky, Sinead, very grateful. I love that so much. So tell me, you were 12 years old in this book. You yes. write it so vividly. I feel like we're in your brain. We're seeing it. We're in the boarding school with you. Do you just have an incredible imagination, uh, incredible memory, or did you keep diaries? You said you spoke to the other girls who were there with you. How did you pull everything back together? Hmm. I think many strands came together. First of all, some of the events of boarding school are just emblazoned on my memory like there's scar tissue they'll <laughs> never leave and I can you know my last night at school my first day at school my first class it's never left me it's as though I'm there right now I, I'm just back in that classroom being told off because I didn't know I had to put my hand up to attract the attention of the teacher so memory sort of scar tissue memory secondly we were all just um, in those days getting we just moved from, I'm sure you've never heard of brown, brownies, but they were old cameras. From the olden days, as my mother would call them, and we just moved into little cameras and that you you just, you could buy and you could click and they had a roll of 24 pictures. So we were allowed to have one for a term. So for each term, I had 24 pictures of the girls and the dormitories and the school grounds. And so I actually, and I kept, because we all did back then, we all had photo albums. And I still have, thanks to my mother storing them for me, uh, a record of the five years in photographic form. Then I contacted all my boarding school buddies and asked them to remind me of their memories and their stories came flooding in and they sent photographs and I said to three of them, do you want to work with me on this? And they said yes, because I knew I had to get the facts right because there are a lot of people um, who would be putting their hand up to, to alert me if I hadn't got them right. And so that's how it came together, sort of fact checking and cross-referencing with the other boarders, the photos, and, of course, diaries and the letters home, some of the letters home that mum had kept, and then stories that family members remembered um, because we're such a small community here in the outback and almost everyone has a boarding school story. And then we all came back during the holidays to camp drafts and stock camps and gymkhanas, and we all got together then. So I had... I just had a wealth of material to draw from. I could have written the book three times longer. It was actually difficult um, cutting it down. But, yes, yeah, some of the images, like, for example, the corridor of Patchel Wing uh, of, uh, in first year, that long linode corridor that smelt of and that grease, that special cleaning grease that they, they used and the stairs that went up and up and up like to heaven and it was the most terrifying corridor and that's, I'll never forget. I actually went back after I'd done the book and discovered it wasn't a very long corridor at all and the stairs actually weren't very high at all but when you're 12, coming from the bush, everything seemed like it was Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> How did you decide what to include and what to leave out? Oh, again, that's a good question because um, I had to take out a lot um, because I knew I was very emotionally involved in this story. Um, I had my, my three boarders 
friends who closely read it and advised. And then I had three or four other friends of the time, um, some who'd been in, some who knew me back then and some who didn't to read it as well. And again, I got all their feedback, all their feedback. And bit, there were some parts I really wanted to include and they'll say, no, nah, no. Nah. So they were removed and other parts I didn't really want to include. And they go, no, that's really important. So in the end, I sifted and sifted and uh, sort of eventually miraculously came up with just a, you know, enough stories. But it was a bit long. Most memoirs are sort of about 80 to 90,000 words and mine, all my memoirs are 95,000 and would be longer if the Oh, it didn't feel that me. long. I think because it's such an easy read, it didn't oh, feel like a, an yeah. epically long novel. Everything, yeah. like you said, it, everything felt like it needed to be there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So does a memoir, and I'm asking this as someone who's never even tried to write a memoir, follow a standard narrative arc? in terms of, you know, the beginning, the climax, that sort of thing. Did you have to sit down and think before you started in terms of, you know, what, what were the pivotal things that I need to build up to or? Yes. Um, that was one of the things my mentor really drummed into me, narrative art, narrative art. Memoir has to be the same as fiction in the sense you have to have a, a hero or heroine, flawed, a flawed heroine who has to climb many mountains and then you get to the all is lost before finally they pull themselves through and out and save the world. So that's the standard fiction um, hero's journey. And me my mentor said, think of memoir in that sense. People want to read a story. So my memoirs are slightly different. As in Alistair Prague, I wrote almost like fiction and um I've had a number of people ask me whether it actually was true or whether it was, was fiction. And in that, I definitely tried to use the narrative arc. Um, the other two books, there's a narrative arc, but it's not quite as strong. But I've still tried to keep those key elements. And that's because I've, um, an Alice girl is basically age zero to 12, and then beyond Alice is age 12 to 18. But in a sense, those lives had that narrative arc, starting out as this young, flawed, confused kid, fighting the dragons, climbing the mountains, reaching the point where you don't think you can go on, and then you do and you find a way through. And both those um, childhood and boarding school books tended in their own way to have that arc anyway. And I think for most teenagers, they'll probably think first to second year, you know, year eight and nine, nightmare, year 10, you're rebelling, year 11, it's like, where's this going? And then year 12, you just get it all together and you come out the other side. So I, in a sense, they had their own natural art, but then I worked on it. Once I got the text down, I worked and worked on it to, to try and give it that shape. But and Alice to Prague definitely follows that sort of classic fiction style. I loved seeing your development through the book that first year, like you said, where you were this scared, helpless 12-year-old that was smaller than everybody else and terrified <laughs> of everything. And we really saw the change in the second year when your sister Melissa came and all of yeah. a sudden there was this bravery that came out of you that you were like this fierce protector of her and you were never willing to stand up for yourself. But for her, you would have gone and tackled anybody. It was amazing. Yeah. And that's where I guess the arc comes in because we do see that development that happened each year as yes. you're going through the school. 
Yes, yes. I think that's I think that's so. And I did get braver each year and I learned more skills each year. And there are a couple of times I nearly came toppling down, but um, I think the growing up in the bush gave me huge resilience as well. And having my sister there and the music that we played um, really got us through. And the fact that even though I was having to learn school, I still, I smuggled down my orange typewriter and I still typed stories of kids in the bush and I'd sit on the, you know, on the beds and all the girls would crowd around and I'd read them aloud. They'd say, read us another story, Tanya. And so all of that kept me going as well, uh, which was just, that was a godsend. That um, And the girls themselves and the fact we all became each other's family. Were there any bits you were nervous about including in terms of the mistresses were really horrible and the sorts of things they said to you girls growing up? Like I remember in your first year, one of the girls went into solitary confinement, we'll call it, and the mistress told her it was her parents didn't love her. That's why she'd been sent to boarding school. Were you nervous to include any of that? I noticed at the end you wrote about name changes for the mm. mistresses. Mm. So I did two things. All those stories, first of all, I spoke with the girls who, so if the story involved one of the other girls, um, I reached out to them. So in this case, it was Jo, Joanne. So I said, Jo, I really want to tell this story of what happened to you. Are you open to that? And she said, well, I've never forgotten it. Never, ever. I still think about it today. So yes. So, I, so then what I'd do, so just using her as the example, I'd write the story and I'd cross-reference it with my other three friends who were reading on the side and made sure I'd incorporated their memories as well. But, but because we were all there together, our memories were sort of fixed in that time to make sure that was correct. And then I sent it to Jo and said, here it is, Jo, please read this, um, mark it up, make changes if you're not happy with it. Uh, it's got to be something you want. So I got sign off from every one of the girls. And then the second thing I did was I, as you noted, I, I changed the names of the boarding house mistresses. Most of them, I think, would be gone now. They were so old. <laughs> well, they seem so old. Of course, I'm nearly their age probably, but they seemed so old at the time. And so I don't think most of them would be there. And the headmistress, who was the worst of all. I mean, she was sadistic. She now is is long dead. So I felt if I changed the names and I had each girl sign off on the story, that was the best protection that I could get. And then I kept the names in of the academic teachers who we only saw in school there because they were by and large wonderful. So we had this contrast of mistresses who were like the jail wardens bitter and twisted and then we had these wonderful teachers who came in during the day and went home to their families and loved teaching and I feel really really grateful so many of them inspired me so I kept their names in because I wanted to honour mm-hmm. them so it's a bit of protection on one side and then honouring the great teachers on the other. And you made that decision yourself to change the names that wasn't a publisher recommendation or anything? No but the publisher um, did write to me when I sent through my first draft and said, now tell us um, how you're going to protect Alan and Unwin from, <laughs> from defamation cases. <laughs> yeah, exactly, with this. And so I was really prepared. I mean, luckily had a good legal training. So years of being the law, so I sent back all the, I've done this and I've changed that and I've cross-referenced and I've proofed. And so they were confident in the end that I'd taken every step I could to verify 
the facts of the story and also they were facts through my eyes as well. So that is the one thing about memoir. Um, other people might say, I don't remember it happening exactly like that. But if you and, say, four or five others do, and that's in your story through your eyes, um, that's, my, that's also my response. That is my recollection, and that's the recollection of the girls that happened to as well. Mm. So, I've, yeah, I, I was very, very careful. But the other thing is, you know, the, the truth out. It was all, everything in the book is truthful. And a few said when a few were nervous, and I said, no, these were really terrible times and some terrible things happened to these girls and I want to honour them and tell their story. And I felt really passionate about doing that. These girls have carried these scars for years and they were so glad and some of them really proud to know that like, one of the girls had terrible anorexia, terrible, before we knew what it was and she lived on nothing but cups of tea and her parents had put so much pressure on her and she cried constantly and we thought she was going to have a nervous breakdown in year 12 and her parents never knew that so I wrote a modified version of that and she was able to give them a copy of the book and say this this is my story this is what happened to me and her parents both cried and said we're so sorry we had no idea so that felt like a really good thing to be doing about the story as well because kids don't have the support of their family and they have wicked old prison mistresses in charge. Um, it's, you know, there, there are people who are 45 years on are still living with those legacies. So I think it, in the end it came out okay. Came out very well. So you mentioned earlier, so Alistair Prague was a long time in the making. What did you say, 15 years? 15 years. 15 Shanae. years. And oh then God. once you were given a deadline by Alan and Unwin for the following books, how yes. long did it take you to write Beyond Alice and was it around a full-time job still? Yes, all around a full-time job and uh, moving back to Alice Springs and my father dying, it was a really, really traumatic time. I think writing perhaps helped me. So 15 years, um, then I had a 12-month period to write the second one, An Alice Girl. So probably I wrote that in four months and then the rest of the time was the editing and the finalising of it. Um, beyond Dallas, again, I had a 12-month period. This is all back-to-back -back as well, and that took probably six months in total because I did so much more cross-referencing mm. so many other people in there. So uh, Alistair Pryor came out in 2019, Beyond Alice 2020, sorry, and Alice Girl 2020 and Beyond Alice 2021. So three years in a row. So it was absolutely back-to-back, back, for which I can also thank my legal training for teaching me to work under pressure to <laughs> deadlines. I was going to say, did the deadline help or was it um, hindering the process? Was it a <laughs> <laughs> mental breakdown causer? <laughs> no, luckily I have had to spend my entire career working under deadline pressure. So um, that's a, a skill I've learned over the years not to, to fall apart, in fact, to try and make it work for me. And there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind and sheer panic, like, oh, my God, I don't have much longer. <laughs> Man, I, it, it drove me. But then by then I was really passionate, you know, and Alice Girl, the middle one, I hadn't set out to write about those growing up years, but that was part of the deal. And once I started, then I felt really passionate about telling the stories of all these bush people. And then when I started Beyond Alice, I became really passionate about telling them stories of the girls that I was with. So it, um, 
it it flowed and I think uh, for me a deadline helps. What would your biggest advice be for somebody who is setting out to write a memoir? We've got a lot of aspiring writers who listen to the program. Where, where would you point them? I would find in your life the aspect of your life that's different or unusual to anyone else's because that will make it stand out in the market and perhaps attract the attention of a publisher. And then, so these are all pieces of advice given to me, I hasten to add, none of it my own. Secondly, um, then go back into the feelings, into your heart. So if you spent life as a lawyer like I had, I basically had to train myself to go back into memories I'd blocked out or left behind or were hidden and then just go into them and sit with them and then write them. And then... Once you've done that and you know what's different and you know the memories, you, you get a feeling for it, then what I do is I just get this huge A4 piece of paper and then I do a chronological um, or issues-based plan and I then start throwing ideas into each issue and each story and then from that I take them and try and put them into some sort of order. It's not, it's not a very structured or organised process, it's organic, but... I do find that, first of all, allowing your heart and emotions to, to flow and bring out your story and then looking at some structure to put around it um, helps. And then if you don't have a deadline, give yourself one because there's probably <laughs> otherwise no reason to get you to sit down and write the damn thing. And sometimes writing memoirs really hard you're going back into memories you don't want to go into so Alistair Prague I had to write you know the grief of losing this man I loved loved I'd never loved anyone in my life like him and I had to go back to being that 32 year old girl and feel that pain and it took me two years to be able to write that section I it was too hard to go back to I just had to persevere and persevere now some people may be able to do it really easily because they haven't blocked that part of them throughout their life, through their career or for other means. Um, so it can be really hard to do and it can be off-putting and you may not want to do it. But that, that my mentor said, is where the sweet spot lies. Mm. Do you think you have to be ready as well to tackle it? I know um, when I interviewed Holden Shepherd a while ago, he quoted it was someone else that had passed the quote on to him, but the advice of to write about your scars, not your wounds because your scars have healed and you're ready to revisit them, whereas if it's too fresh, sometimes it's too hard to go back there? Absolutely, without a doubt. There's another fantastic quote that I can't remember by a very famous writer, of um, an English writer, but it was along those lines. It was, live the experience, grieve it, and then give yourself long enough that you can see it as a memory and basically a scar, not a wound, and then write about it. So I, I'm, I don't think I could have written these books any earlier. And you know, I had a lifetime's distance from the second and the third one. And then Alice to Prague, I started. Um, you know, that that was a bit of everything. But by the time it was published, it was nearly twenty years on, and that you know, involved a lot of adult time by which the scars had healed and I do think I do think that's hugely good advice I think it's very very difficult to write in in the place of raw grief and find a way 
to let it enliven or inspire, encourage others, I think that's really, really good advice. So what's next for you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got lots of ideas. I'm still working full time, so I've got to find out how I can fit it in. I'll have to set myself another deadline, take my own advice. But I would like to be very brave and go back and try my hand at fiction. And I've got this idea, today. So young female lawyer in the outback. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Sounds familiar. (laughs) And some sort of mystery set back in the 1990s, which I think um, was late 80s, early 90s, was my most formative years as a young lawyer. And I was young. And I mean, I'm still young, of course, especially in spirit, but I, I was sort of starting out in those years. And so I don't have any idea of the plot, but I've got some characters in mind. And then one day when I have the chance, I would like to write more about the Czechs. I've got some fantastic stories I've taken down from Czech people who fled communism and came to Australia and that whole issue of dispossession and home. How do you make a new home when your heart belongs in another place? And then how do you reconcile having two places? And that's a real theme for refugees and immigrants everywhere. And I've got some extraordinary stories that I'd like to weave into sort of, it wouldn't really be memoir, it'd be more non-fiction. So both these ideas are... Just now I've got to carve out some space and try and persuade my publisher to be interested in at least one of them. (laughs) Plenty of things to keep you busy between that and full-time work and everything else that happens in life. I've got to ask Christmas just around the corner. In Beyond Alice, you talked about Christmas Eve, your kids rolling out the swags outside to sleep under the stars. Does that still happen? (laughs) Um, Well, no, not very often because we've got really slack now. We have an air conditioner. Ah, <laughs> that's then, how you're surviving today's 41 degree heating. That's exactly where you are. how I'm, I've got my air conditioner on, and very soon I'll turn the fan on as well. And I think, how did we survive it? Uh, all through summer, we had to sleep in our, our swags under the stars because it was too hot inside. And the nights here are about 35 degrees in summer. That makes for a very, very restless very restless, uncomfortable night and you'd only get that bit of chill sort of at about 2am. Um, but still I go out under the stars and look at them and um, we had this wonderful um, opportunity around Christmas. We used to go out and get mulga trees and make a Christmas tree out of those. And I've just got this very brief story. My nephew said to me, Auntie Tan, um, we got a Christmas tree the other day from Kmart. Are you going to get one? It's got bells and everything on it. He's five. <laughs> and I said, no, Charlie, no, no, no. We, we, we'll go back out into the bush and get a mulga tree. And he looked at me, he said, Auntie Tan, that's not a Christmas tree. That's a mulga tree. And it just <laughs> shows how things have changed because back then we had, well, we lived in the middle of nowhere. We, we had no access to, there wasn't even a Kmart. Um, and we got this little bit of mulga tree and decorated it the best we could. And uh, so it shows also even a, a child from the outback now has a very different thought on Christmas. Well, please go and get your mulga tree and then post a photo <laughs> on your of, of, on your socials so that we can oh, see it and keep up. I will, I will. Thank you for that. Thank <laughs> you so much for your time today and being so generous with your information and also for Beyond Alice. Honestly, it is just a delightful read and I hope everybody picks it up. Oh, thanks so much, Nav. Love talking to you. Thank you.
And thank you for listening to the Riders Off The Page podcast. Make sure you check out the back catalogue and while you're there, I'd love it if you left a rating or review. It helps other people discover the podcast. If there's an author you want me to chat to or you just want to say hi, hit me up on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Shanae Maripodi. That's C-H-E-N-E-E. Thanks for listening. Bye.